0: you're listening to two guys talking wine with michael pincus and andre Prue.
1: so we're uh sitting around here uh watching a leaf game and suddenly wouldn't you know it there's a knock on the door and some guy shows up with a case of wine and I would
0: never say no to anyone who shows up at my door with a case of wine.
1: I know, I've showed up with a case of wine at your door, and uh, I hope you carry it in damn well do. Where's the corkscrew? And uh, <laughs> that voice we hear is Will Roman from uh, Rosewood. Or yeah. Rosemount. Rosemount, oh yeah. So we got Rosemount, it came all the way from Australia, <laughs> yeah. but from, uh, from Rosewood, and he brought us a wonderful case of, uh, of wine. Uh, was it 12, exactly? Uh, 13, actually. 13. Yeah. A baker's dozen yeah. shows up, and um, and I'll be honest, I knew he was coming. So, <laughs> so there's an old bottle on the table as well. Where should we yeah. start talking about the winery? Well, listen, I, I, I think we wanted to talk to
0: Will a little bit about the history of the winery. Sure. Uh, I think we're calling this a borderline legacy. I know you and I have talked a bit about Renaming this series of podcasts because we now have moved firmly beyond Chapter One of the Niagara wine industry, and now we're getting into kind of the next
1: wave, some of the newer people, but people who the vines have got a little bit of age age under them. Have now, there's a, f- there's a few strike. people we still want to grab. You know, Peter Gamble, if you're listening, we really want to grab you and, yeah. and talk to you. Uh, but I think that's one of the few that we're really missing from the early parts. But now we're kind of in that mid range. And I think Rosewood kind of fits right in there. Definitely. And, now, and, and Will, why don't you start us yeah, off? Yeah, been all us talking yeah. and we have here as our guest. Yeah. Why don't you tell us, you know, when the winery starts? Sure. And, uh, you know, what's the impetus of wanting to start a winery in Ontario,
2: which always still blows my mind why somebody <laughs> would want to do that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so Rosewood began actually as a uh, promise between my mom my mom and my dad uh, on their honeymoon to Narrowing the Lake. So they actually went there on their honeymoon and they... Uh, both fell in love with the region, they thought it was beautiful. They loved the orchards, the vineyards, the fruit. At that time, there's only Inniskillen that was around really kicking. Wow. Um, so, uh, and I think Consulman just opened up, right? It was in 82, okay. so they just opened, I think, or right before. Um, and basically, Eugene, my father, he promised her that one day they'd build a winery together. And then fast forward 18 years and they bought their first piece of land um, down there. And that's where they then began to prepare the land for planting, and they planted the vineyard in 2003. Uh, and then the building, the first phase of the building went up in 05. And then we plant or we first got our first harvest in 06, and then we opened our doors publicly in 2008 in May. So we just passed the 10-year mark of being our, our doors open to public, and oh. we just completed our 12th vintage essentially. Um, so it's been an interesting journey since then, and there's been a lot of evolution of the brand, the style of the winemaking, the labels themselves, the logo as well, um, how we speak about wine, uh, the the building itself as well. Now I've gone through three phases of evolution or evolution um, and expansion, you could say, and so it's been a Really interesting journey of uh, progress. So shall we, will we shall we taste a
1: piece of history right now? Let's do that sh- because sure. okay. you, said,
0: you said that it was o- so 08 that they opened. They opened yeah. we
2: opened, and 06 was our first vintage. So this being an 08 uh, single barrel uh, Cabernet Franc yes. would have been our, our third vintage so, essentially. So what we're looking oh, at wow. here. So, uh, so
0: we're now we're now talking to to people at wineries
1: after I moved to Ontario. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. here we I are, was Ontario 07. So this is an 08. Barrel 59 Cabernet Franc made by um, Natalie Spikowski, who was mm-hmm. your first winemaker. Yep. Uh, and it's uh, Raneseau vine- Vineyard, Ranasseau, yeah. uh, which is still in existence. Obviously, it's still on the on the new bottles. Yep. But uh, this is an 08, and uh, one of my favorite parts about uh, Natalie was that she hated Cabernet Franc. I loved Cabernet Franc. And um, she made some
2: really great Cabernet Franc. Yeah. She was me. more of a uh, Riesling and a Pinot fan. Yeah. Uh, but she I agree, I always loved her Cabernet Francs. I thought that they were really well made. Uh, the concentration of fruit and the oak profile and the tannin structure uh, was really quite something. And they always, as an early wine drinker in my youth, I always gravitated towards them. I thought they were really incredible wines that were coming out of our, of our uh, early portfolios, you could say. Um, and I really enjoyed them. And then I remember when she first presented the idea behind the single barrel uh, program, or the single barrel program, um, it began with Cabernet Franc, and it only stayed with Cabernet Franc, and so for uh, three years in a row, we always made a single barrel of Cabernet Franc, um, and so it was a really nice So, what happened idea. to barrels 1 through 58? So, basically, they were just all various other vintages, essentially. So, okay. other vintages, other types of wines. <laughs> Wait, so, so this is actually the 59th barrel precisely. that you guys made? Yes. Uh, okay. Well, not only the 59th barrel, it came from the barrel that was numbered 59. So, uh, I guess going back a number of years now, so I don't remember what vintage it would have been that barrel, how old that barrel was. It was probably either a new or a uh, first use barrel. Um, mm-hmm. So it would have been zero 01 then dash, dash oh 08, most likely. Um, but it was the 59th barrel that was used.
1: Cool. So this is third vintage. Now, the fruit mm-hmm. here is how old? The vines were planted in 03, so they have been five years old. Okay, so this we're moment. looking at a five year old Cabernet yeah. Franc. Uh, do you have any specs on this one? Or just... <laughs> wait,
0: wait, will were you even yeah. legal
2: age to drink this when it was made? That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I would have. Maybe I would have turned just about nineteen. Okay. Maybe. maybe uh, I would have been. Yeah, I would have been twenty, so I would have just been legal actually. <laughs> okay. uh, or it would have been nineteen actually on this on this year. I, I got hand harvesting
1: yeah. out of this. Yeah. Uh, I've got. Um whole cluster press Uh, I don't have any time or in barrel or anything like that yeah (laughs) you know I I have to
2: look back in our records for it Um, honestly this is before my involvement I was still in university at this time so um, this is right before I got into the Niagara program so I finished my BCom at Mac and then went to Nara College right afterwards. So that was the transition from spring of 09 to fall of 09. Yeah. So I was just finishing my or starting my first year or my last year of university. Sorry, but this was but not
1: like, a great vintage.
2: Yeah. Like 08 no, is
1: a very wet, wet yeah. uh, very. Yeah. But yeah. you know what? Um, again, you know the brilliance of, of Natalie. This thing is.
0: Because uh, you opened this. You opened this about an hour ago, hour and change ago. Yep. And it, it was. I think Conrad Edgebeck was drinking with us. And yep. he said that it had a had cabbage a cabbage, cabbagey mm-hmm. note. But that cabbagey note is long gone. This mm-hmm. is like that's it's, bottle funk, right? Yep, yeah. It's, it's it's dried dried out fruit. Like it's it's secondary, a little bit of tertiary, but still got a little bit of youth to it. Acids are great. I don't know if I would hold this much longer. No,
1: no. But it's it's I think it's lovely. Like I don't know how many I have left, but I'm glad I pulled that out of the cellar. But and it's it was really funny because I walked into the cellar today, yeah. knew that I was uh, knew you were coming, and um, but I wasn't. I wasn't going to bring anything. And then I basically, because you have a very distinctive, or at the time, you had a very distinctive capsule that said rosewood around the Mm -hmm. the edge. And like, as I was putting something away, and I saw it, and I went, oh, well, why don't I grab that and take it with? (laughs) And um, Henry always gets into the podcast somehow. (laughs) I saw it, and I'm like, all right, well, why not? Grab it. You know what's the worst gonna happen? Well, it's interesting that you you know I, I
0: think we can timeline this. Uh, I mean, we want to drag this out as much as we can to get as much detail. But you talk about the change in in branding because the new yep. labels, the new labels are really really distinct and quite sharp. If anyone has has seen them, and definitely a nod to um, the honey heritage of the winery, which which I want to talk about pretty yep. quick. But even just taking a look at the evolution from this label to just ten years now, things
2: have moved ahead. Uh, like a million miles yeah yeah you know when we first began um as you noted about the honey side of our business or the beekeeping is that uh going back now three generations as beekeepers we know the beekeeping business and the honey business quite well you know it's we're going into our 87th year of beekeepers in our family which is really cool um but back then in 2008 or even 2006 when the when the first wine started coming out of our door um we were we were babies you know, as in terms of wine uh, producers, we really didn't know all that much. And I'll go on the record saying that because it's the truth. Um, We, like my father and my mother and and Natalie, like Natalie had many years under her belt at that point, but all of us still um, in terms of the overarching vision of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it was still really unknown to us. And so that's where we came up with this type of wine. We came up with this kind of brand and this kind of label. And it's, and you look at it, there's uh, inspiration elements drawn from various other parts of the world, obviously. Um, some of them could be from Ontario at that time, but they're, they're mostly coming from France, right? And that's mm-hmm. where the uh, inception of the, the actual planting of the grapes were coming from France is a lot of from Bordeaux. That's where, where Eugene planted the vines that he liked to drink, and he's a very big Bordeaux fan. Okay. Um, I also I also love
1: the staining of that bottle. Like, I mean the, the, yeah, the sediment, the sediment, sediment off, that is yeah. just just kicked off, and it's this is you know if if anybody has any in their cellar, I, I can just tell them that uh, now's the time to drink it. I don't think this is getting any better, but uh, open it up, let it sit for about forty minutes, and then just drink it. Uh, like that's it's a beautiful bottle wine. Yeah, yeah thank well you. I guess, yeah. I guess let,
0: let's talk a little bit about uh, the grapes that were planted when uh, when Rosewood started because yep. by the time I discovered Rosewood and started writing about Rosewood one thing that impressed me was your Seuss Reserve Riesling Mm -hmm. as being incredibly approachable and uh, definitely a great way to kind of bridge that gap between people who were drinking you know the off dry really quite sweet plonk and moving into real wine it was a comfortable way to ease your way into it where even for people more savvy about wine um, you know that those wines always had great acidity and were just good food wines. Really perfect for summer. Yeah, they were nice and structured as well, but not in an overly aggressive way. I thought. So, when Rosewood opened its doors, mm-hmm. what were what was the family hoping the identity of the winery would be? That's again a great question.
2: Um, honestly, back then, I think that it was done purely as a a dream of let's build a winery because that's okay. why I started the conversation saying it was built on a promise between Eugene and Renata. Um, they, I don't think they really thought about it. They wanted it to be a, a cottage winery. They truly thought that they'd be happy making you know, 1,500 to 2,000 cases of wine a year uh, from the original planting of those six acres, and, and that was it. Um, and as you catch the bug or you get stung by this craft, you, know, you start to learn and realize, hey, Ah, uh, this is really fun. and And I get to play around with a new set of wines or a new set of grapes, uh, new blocks, new vintage every single year. and and that's exciting. That's different. it's It's interesting. And so um, as we started to grow more mature, you could say, uh, we started to expand our offerings, expand our portfolio, we acquired another property, planted another vineyard, uh, and started growing our our passion for making uh, just different wine. You could say, I don't want to use the word better wine. I think the brand has evolved from when we were younger in our youth, but we are making different wines than we ever have been, for sure. Um, And the the different points of them are is that we approached our craft completely differently than we did 10 years ago.
1: So if I remember, like I remember, you were not even around, I think, when when this... uh, If I remember correctly, the focus of Rosewood when it started was Merlot Mm -hmm. and Sémillon. And And, um, I, I think both of those have kind of been put to the side if I'm not mistaken. Sometimes it's a weather thing and sometimes it's a it's a a consumer thing. So we're...
2: So we did have Merlot planted. We had an extensive portion of Merlot planted in the beginning from our home vineyard uh, as well as Semillon. Um, Unfortunately they both died in the frost event in 2014. So that was the uh, third week of February or the first week into the first week of of March that basically the vines were just killed it was that negative 29 degree day uh then evening lows got down to negative 32 and it just killed the vines um I remember I was in New Zealand at the time working in Central Otago where I got the email saying hey we think we lost a third of our vines and I was like damn that really sucks um and (laughs) that's a nice way of putting it (laughs) yeah I I asked the winemaker that I was working for at the time to say hey I need I need to go for a walk for 15 minutes because we just lost a third of everything and she was nice enough uh, to give me that time. She said, go take half an hour. I understand that. <laughs> go. Um, and I was there out there learning how to make better Pinot, basically. Um, so, yeah, we had them. And I think that they were great because they distinguished us. Um, I don't think that if it wasn't for that event, would we have changed those plantings to something else because of consumer uh, awareness or appreciation? Definitely not. Um, Semillon, for me, is a wine that I always loved. And I wish that we had it still today. Uh, I wish that our, and I hope one day that our, vintages and our seasons would allow it to be planted again um, and to be safely harbored in our soils because it was a beautiful well,
0: vine. And, and Simeon was definitely something that, like, it, 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 it didn't define rosewood, but it was a feather in your cap because mm-hmm. it was something that had a cult was following different. and yeah. not... Anyone well, else? I don't, I don't know if there's anyone. Well, else I'd argue. I'd argue with you, with you there. I the think. It, I think yeah. it was. Uh,
1: it was something that defined you definitely was, yeah. because. Uh, I agree. I, I looked at uh, you know what I have in my cellar. I have an 09, I have an '11. I have a '13. I know that '10. Yeah. Uh, I drank recently, uh, and it was delicious. Like it, w- like it was recently. If you think we're we're recording this in 2018, not yep. knowing when we're going to release this one. But um, oh, this is one of our last podcasts that we're recording. In oh, look at yeah. us. And um, <laughs> Second last. Congratulations, Congratulations. But, but I mean, you know, uh, I remember tasting the tent, and I'm like, I'd be honest with you. I was like, I opened it up, and I was like, you know what? I don't know where this is going to go. And I, had a, and I always have a backup bottle with bottles that I'm, you know, a little bit leery about. And uh, we drank the whole bottle. It was absolutely stunningly good. And that gave me real hope for the nine, for the 11, for the 13. Knowing that you know, if this tan is going to be good, I you know, for these vintages that aren't as well, you know, great, 10 was a hot vintage, semi yeah, you know, yeah. uh, I, I think it's gonna gonna go great. And you know, Andre, you, you, if you play your cards right and don't send me the bag of you know what's that you want to send me for Christmas, <laughs> maybe I'll open one of those up with you and you can taste it. <laughs> okay,
0: okay, okay. All, all kidding aside, right now, and I know we've kind of gone full in on, on wine. And the great wines that Rosewood ha- has made over the years. But we kind of skipped over a nugget of information that you just dropped there that's very important to the identity of Rosewood. Was How many years did you say your family's been involved in beekeeping? Uh, 87 now. Yeah that's 28 years. That's very interesting. And yeah. one of the things that, that Rosewood has
2: been doing since the get-go... Yes, Since yeah. the gecko has been mead. Mead, the honey wine. Yeah, we're still the only licensed winery in Ontario to... Licensed winery to house, also have our licensed honey winery.
1: And you have bees on the property, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. We have,
2: uh, not that we have to, by, by law, in terms of the AGCO to hold it, um, but we have to have enough under our control uh, to hold and maintain our alcohol license or so our honey wine license. Um, so we have them all across the Niagara Square and scattered there. And we have some behind the winery tucked away in the valley, which is the UNESCO biosphere. As that's part of the Beansville bench. Uh, we have some on our second vineyard property in Jordan. So that's the Blackjack Vineyard, Vineyard um, located on 21st Street, hence Blackjack. Um, and then we have some scattered around other properties that we just find. So we uh, hop in a truck, we drive around, and if we see a little area that looks like it's high ground, protection from the north and the west, we walk up to the, to the farm or the landowner and say, hey, have you guys ever considered of having bees on your property? And we just have a very simple conversation with them, and it's a barter exchange. So we just uh, explain to them what the process means and if we collect honey from that yard that landowner gets two pounds of honey per hive. So typically it's 30 to 40 hives per per uh, apiary site. So that landowner then gets you know two or three large buckets of honey for that year and that's you know That's more than a year's worth of honey So they attempt to gift it to their family members and use it for baking and and treats and all that kind of stuff and uh, everyone everyone wins that scenario. Hang on hang on. Anya? You're making a
0: face. How many buckets of honey do people actually go through? Because I certainly yeah. go through at
2: least two a year. Okay, so... But my these are 15-pound these are <laughs> buckets. But yeah, you're, 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 yeah these, are the, these are big ones, the big ones. So that was a bit of an aside.
0: My wife is a pastry chef, okay. and we've always got, the, I think, the biggest bucket <laughs> that you guys sell at the is retail the t- store. Yeah, the three kilo. Ugh. Yeah. And I think we're going through... That's just a, <laughs> we're going <laughs> through about two the of these a year. Well, now
1: I'd like to also say that uh, sometimes... Andre likes to uh, just kind of coat himself in honey and run through the neighborhood naked. Wouldn't it be the first time. No, it's not. <laughs> and
0: uh, there are no photos that pr- prove that, but I am not denying it. So, um, so, so, so what, so what would make you decide to make mead? I find that that really fascinating because the meads that you guys yeah. make are, are delicious and you kind of cover the whole spectrum of the rainbow from sweet until dry. And I know obviously with the yeah. new winemaker, and we're not at that part of the story yet. Yeah. Things are getting even even Wilder, more creative, yeah. but it's not like there's a huge <coughs> market for me.
2: Not uh, in Ontario, at least. Um, okay. Quebec's a big market for honey wines. Um, London's a big honey wine, like London, UK, and Scotland, and so all of Great Britain is. Okay. Um, Eastern Europe, so Poland, Ukraine, and parts of Western Russia are really big parts of it. Ethiopia is a big uh, market for. So honey these wines. are all
0: people you're exporting to?
2: Um, some of them, yeah. Serious? Yeah. Some of them we're starting to. Yeah, we're having conversations. Ethiopia. Ethiopia yeah, they actually have make, make their own type of honey wine called Tej which uses um, a herb and spice that's partially unfermented honey still involved in the process and it's bottled when it's still, kind of like a pet net where it's still fermenting and it can be quite Reminds me of explosive. an old joke about the fastest yeah. bird in the world is a chicken running through Ethiopia. <laughs> not sure yeah, if not that's an milk. appropriate joke, Michael. <laughs> no, alright. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the honey wines are a smaller market here for sure, um, but to answer your question about why we did it is because of my grandfather. So um, my grandfather, uh, William Roman Sr. Um, He always wanted to make honey wine. It was his dream and his passion to make honey wine in Ontario as a commercial uh, meadery. So he started applying for his honey wine license back in 1967. And he was uh, never given the license for five years in a row. And so he applied every single year as many times as he could. And they just didn't allow him to have the license. At that time, we were in that black hole of the Ontario uh, alcoholic license uh, gifting uh, area. Or era, you could say. And so they didn't give out an, an alcohol license for him. He didn't have a backing of a bank. He was a immigrant, uh, still not you know. Language was a second language, and didn't speak that well. Um, he just bought And your family is your family's Ukrainian, right? Ukrainian, yeah. And um, so yeah, so he wanted to make honey wine, and that's kind of where his dream was crushed. My father Eugene saw that his dream was crushed, and he said, "I'm gonna one day make honey wine in his name in Ontario," and that's what gave birth to the idea. Uh, when my parents visited Niagara on their honeymoon, that, hey, this is kind of cool. We can have bees here because they're already in the family. We can purchase a piece of land or buy a vineyard. Then we can start making wine, have the bees there and make something a little bit different. So the idea behind it was always to make something a little bit different than what is the traditional norm of either just beekeeping and honey wine and just wine in, in its own natural sense. So they merged the two. And that's where we came up with that original logo, which is the grape cluster of honeycomb or honeycomb grape cluster. And kind of took it from there. So I,
0: I, I love I love the honey, and I know um, a lot of restaurants in the city love the honey and, mm-hmm. and cook with the honey, and it's just, it's... Local, the thing local is, honey is worth it. Like, but I mean really like it is, it's just like, if, if you've had a chance to taste grocery store honey, and let's face it, honey tastes good, even if it's... poured all over made, your body made, and made, you're running through the neighborhood. Well, right. I mean, if exactly. it's like made in even, China and, and served in a little honey bear, like, like honey tastes good, but once you've had a chance to taste... Local honey from a place up up the street, where uh, you know if if the the farmer can tell you what sort of flowers were planted mm-hmm. near the, the hives, you can get an idea of, of the flavor profile. So if you've never had rosewood honey, um, or the honeycomb, yeah, or the honeycomb, yeah, I mean it's just yeah. it's so
2: it's so worth How do people it. People use that when they're sick. You know, yeah, they chew on the honeycomb. Yeah, because of the propolis. So bees will coat every single cell before yeah. they actually put nectar into the cell with propolis. So propolis is antiseptic, antifungal, antibacterial, and it helps kill anything, uh, basically. So that's why chewing on the honeycomb and absorbing the honey that's that's in there, and then spitting out the beeswax is going to help you. Uh, one of the ladies who's worked at the farm with us for. Since day one, literally, Gabby. I think you guys have both met yep, Gabby, no Gabby over the years. Uh, she has not been sick since she started eating honeycomb. Like, she literally has not ever taken a sick day, and she hasn't been sick since. It's really Maybe crazy. Af- Maybe she's just afraid. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, if you heard the the cork pop,
1: uh, Andre has has uh, pulled the cork on something newer than yes, the 08. But,
0: but this uh, varietal is one of my favorites that Rosewood makes, and it's one of my pa- my parents favorite, and I know they have ordered by the case in the past a lot of it, and we are talking about uh, Chardonnay, and Michael, would you like to throw my catchphrase out oh here? Oh my
1: god, if it says Chardonnay on the label, 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 it's got to be on Andre's table, 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 holy god, it doesn't matter what it is.
0: I had to get I had to get a second opinion on this, because we tasted this earlier this night, and if you check uh, andrewinerview.ca... Uh, a full review of all these wines that we tasted earlier today will be here, but we kind of picked, it, picked a select few for this podcast. But this is the 2015 uh, Renaissance, Yeah, Renaissance. Yep. Okay, Okay, I'm going to say it correctly eventually. Um, or and never. <laughs> whatever. Uh, 2015 Chardonnay. And it's one of these things where... And I know when I've talked to other writers and just other people who've, who've tasted these wines, the thing that's interesting about Rosewood Chardonnay is it's always got... Like a honeyed aroma to it where I, I know you've had people ask you all the time. if you put honey in the wine. All the time. And the thing okay. is when you walk through the front door of the winery and you see all the, the honeycombs and the, the jars of the honey and the mead and everything, you just can't help but ask, ask the question. But yeah. it's, it's just part happen. of the natural profile of, of the wine that you guys are making there.
1: Now this, this, is, this is a wine that is um, uh, I, I find that you love and I'm hashtag not my Chardonnay. Yeah, because you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, not because I'm wrong. Taste their own. How about that? So, no, no, but
0: Michael's wrong sure. But the,
1: but but you call this a transition wine? Yes. So yeah. it, it's it's interesting to talk about that uh, because you are going through a bit of a transition now.
2: Yep. Uh, so let's talk about about what's going on. Sure. Um, so the transition um, is happening in terms of winemaking style. Um, we had a first winemaker, Natalie Slikoski, which we commented about and talked about very briefly with the Cabernet Franc that we began the podcast with, um, and then we moved into now the Chardonnay, which is uh, was began by Ross Weiss. So Ross Weiss in Ontario was formerly, or uh, before us, was working at Flat Rock. Uh, at that point then, he took the reins over at Organized Crime, Good Earth, as well as Rosewood. Um, so that was where he was working as a consultation-based service for everybody. Um, and so he started this wine in 2015, and then about halfway through twenty sixteen, right before harvest, he took a position in, in BC. So he wanted to be closer to his family in New Zealand. So he's like, "I'm gonna go to BC. I got a good offer out there. I'm gonna stick out there." Because that's cool. so much closer. But go on. It's, it's a good five and a half hour, five hour trip, right? It's, uh, it's dude, it's a like this closer, country's like, huge. Yeah, I know. To but. New Zealand, that's, it saves a big leg, right? And, you just sad
1: uh, to see Ross go. Yeah. I think we're all sad to see Ross yeah. go... Congratulations to Ross, by the way, for getting the uh, head winemaking position at uh, Black Hills. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's that was a big...
2: So thing. Ross was your yeah. second winemaker? Yes. Okay. Um, and then, uh, so he began this wine. Um, he fermented this wine in oak. Uh, at that point, it was 50% uh, new oak. And, and then from there, uh, after he had left, uh, Ryan Corrigan and I started talking, and we then essentially uh, began devising, you could say, or scheming a new plan for Rosewood. Uh, And we kind of got together and we said, let's do this. And so at that point, then when Ryan and I tasted the cellar, uh, we started tasting through everything, and this is one of the wines that he immediately did not like the oak profile. He did not like what the oak was doing to the wine, so he removed it from the barrels, blended it all together, and then put it back into neutral oak exclusively. Sat there for an additional year, came out of that, came out of those barrels, and then went back into steel and stayed there for another couple months before being bottled. Uh, so that's why I call this a transitional wine, meaning that it had had a hand of two different winemakers um, to go basically into it.
0: Well, I, I guess before we talk about mm-hmm. the, the, the current transition with where you're at right now, let's just talk a little bit about the years where Ross had taken over, because the labels did take a very dramatic and, turn. and modern yeah. turn, and I mean, the, the Origin Series labels were beautiful, <laughs> and uh, this is when you introduce Lock, Stock, and Barrel. What Mm -hmm. years uh, was Ross working with you guys?
2: Uh, Hold on here. So Ross would have joined the team uh, starting right right about into the 2012, October, so 2012 harvest. That's where uh, we had transitioned. Uh, So Natalie and ourselves had split ways. Ross came in, and at that point it was Luke and myself managing the production space. Ross came in as a consultant, and then very quickly became the winemaker. Um, And and we went from there and that's those wines from 2012 is when we made this change to a more modern fresher label from the previous or the original labels you could say of the estate mm-hmm. um, and that's where we decided to clean things up a little bit we thought it was time for after a couple of years of having this label and now starting to learn a little bit more about the Ontario wine industry and what it means to market wines, right? Back then when we first began, we didn't know what it meant to market wines. Uh, we were believers that if the product is good, it'll sell. And as we all know, it's not necessarily the case. Ah! Right? <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> so we learned if and they we... they build it, they yeah. will come. Yeah. Not so much. Yeah, well, but they, come maybe, fa- they come faster if the building's a lot nicer. Maybe for baseball. Yeah. Um, and so yeah so we decided at that point to modernize the labels a little bit uh, and that's where we made a couple tweaks to the label and we didn't want to just turn a complete new leaf but we kept some elements of the old labels transitioned to the newer one Uh, and the biggest thing at that point is that when we made that switch is that the B was taken off the labels and we had several people who said where did your B go why is the B not there what's going on here and it confused them and we really quickly learned with that very first set of labels that we were missing something our B and that's why we at that point then quickly did a another 180, and we just switched and moved everything to the B. That's why the B is now omnipresent in everything except for lock, stock, and barrel, uh, minus on the cork. Um, but the but B it's is, also interesting you talk about holding on to things about
0: transition, and the thing is, like, I know this is one step yeah. ahead, but the lock stock is, is part of when Ross was Y-making and it, it's now transitioned over to the, the final, yeah. or the current yeah. stage, I shouldn't say final, because yeah. obviously you guys are still evolving and it's learning. still in an
2: evolution, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, the Lockstock and Burroughs an Initiative program, we began in 2011 when I was at NARA College with the, onio- uh, the Viticulture and Oniology program. Um, and then we started as a side project. We weren't sure what to call it and we came up with this idea, no one had used the name before which is shocking to me. Um, so we, we took the trademark because we thought why not um, and we labeled and made this one with Max Kaiser because I thought that he was the right man for this type of label design. Um, and we, we went for it and that's what we have Lockstock and this is a label that I'm very happy with. I love the style, the feel of it, the energy that it uh, it resonates with and what it, what it shows. Um, and I really enjoy it. And I think that Ryan, with his experience now, as if we were to jump ahead another step to talk about Ryan as a winemaker, yeah. his experiences are really conducive to making a really great Bordeaux. And I think that's what is the beauty of this product is that now we've been paired or we've partnered with a winemaker who uh, has a lot of skill set in this fashion or in this field. So this is a frontier that we're going to push towards uh, a new future and a new beginning as well. So.
1: Before we get into the uh, the, the reds uh, and start and talking and tasting... Yeah, because you stole
0: a glass because you really are not a fan of the, the Chardonnay. Yeah, the Chardonnay is really-
1: not is not my wine. I, I find it too oaky, and I guess it must be that uh, that new oak that it went through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking forward to trying the 16, yeah. because I, I can see where the new winemaker has tried to dial it mm-hmm. back. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't imagine where Ross was going with that, um, in, the, in that new oak and everything. So... Um, so Sommelier is gone, Merlot is gone, yes. looking at the uh, at the, at the wines here. Uh, I did pull the cork on the Viognier, which yes. is new for you guys. It is new for
2: us, yeah. Uh, it's, not our, it's not our own fruit, so we do bring that fruit in from a grower, a uh, friend of ours. Um, he offered it to us, uh, or two people offered it to us, and we said, sure, let's, let's play with something new and different. Um, and Ryan and myself have always... Uh, Have a love-hate relationship with Viognier, you could say, but we thought it'd be something fun to play with, to, again, experiment and see what we could do using a a neutral oak, Uh, and we kind of went for it, right?
1: And and it's a lovely wine, so if you're anti-chardonnay in any way, shape, or form, such as I am, I think the Viognier really brings it all together. It really is a lovely wine, very tropical, but not... Uh, with a with a hint of vanilla there's something interesting about Mm -hmm. that wine so I went I went over there so what replaced the uh, the Merlot
2: so in the Merlot uh, post Merlot if you will uh, we planted Cabernet Franc and Cab Sauvignon and uh, about five or six rows of Petit Verdot Uh, so this is an area that that block uh, that north block as we call it on the uh, Renaissance vineyard property um, that North block has a lot of heat accumulation Uh, so that's where the Chardonnay um, that one that you don't like gets a lot of ripeness the one that you do like uh, gets a lot of natural ripeness, so that's why in the sixteen we actually doubled the crop yield on there to drop down that ripeness, to slow things down, to reduce the vigor a little bit, just to get a little more lean. We want to go in a leaner, more reserved style for the Chardonnay specifically. Um, but where in the Merlot stead, we planted Cap Franc, capsule of and Petit with the intention of it going towards the Bordeaux program. Um, the Merlot just died again. That polar vortex, it was heartbreaking. Uh, we're not going to go through that kind of program again because it's just it's not smart business. You know, this is a business at the end of the day, and we have to consider that. Merlot in that field is just not going to work. So we have to make the tough call and say we're not going to replant it. It's just like with the Simeon, same thing. But you did
1: it with a Capsule, you said. We so did. Soap. So yeah. that's, that's a very strange thing to go with. But uh, what I guess I was trying to, to get you to go with was uh, if you're not
2: going to go Merlot, then you're going to have a little bit of uh, gamete. Well, that's where the Simeon was. So we planted the Gamay where the Semillon is, um, but this Gamay that you're holding is not from our field either. The Gamay no, that, well, that we're sucks. holding is... <laughs> <laughs> the the Gamay that we, we grow from our field goes in towards our, our pet nat, the Nebulous. Uh, that's what it's been going to for the last two seasons, and uh, we're not sure what's going to happen for the coming season with it, but that's where it's been going the last two vintages. Are you still continuing ones. with Nebulous? Definitely. Oh, okay, so yeah. the
0: first the first year you made Nebulous, it was Pinot Noir and Semillon. Pinot and Semillon, from
2: this Pinot block.
0: And the second year yeah. was pure Pinot. Pure Gamay. Pure Gamay. It was all that okay. Gamay, yeah. And then this year, what is the twenty eighteen
1: is
2: also one hundred percent gamay. Okay.
1: From that same block. But what, yeah. what we're looking at here is is, a, is basically a
2: completely new
1: wine for Rosewood. Yep. Whereas Viognier would be the new Semillon, for mm-hmm. for lack of a better way of saying it. We're also looking at the new Merlot has become gamay. Yes. So this is something completely new to your portfolio, and it's and and you've really gone whole hog because you showed us three different versions of gamay. Uh, my favorite of of the three. Uh, just happens to be what they call the night moves game. Oh, yeah. this is a cool story though. We should yeah. tell the story about why it's called night moves. And and it's it's really is just a delicious gamay. It really is. That. It's you. got that juiciness yeah. to it. It's got a little bit of earthiness to it. It's mm. got a little bit. Of, it's got a lot of almost everything to it. It's a little cranberry. Yeah. That little earthiness. A little bit of. Well, I know. I know you and I. We've
0: kind of talked in the podcast a little bit about it. It's something I've been saying is that I think one of the hurdles we need to overcome, both as, as writers and people in the Ontario wine industry, is to stop comparing ourselves to other places. But it is really hard to not talk about this wine and think about really great Beaujolais Village.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. A, I think it's a beautiful, a beautiful wine um a little bit of a chill on it which because you you came in from minus two degree weather it, it had a little bit of yep. a chill on it yep. uh which was lovely uh and so so explain this why uh you decided to go gamay like you went merlot and then you said ah, let's go with gamay so what what brings you to the gamay game so
2: we thought that gamay um not to quote uh Kramer, I think it was Matt Kramer came in for I4C a couple of years ago, and he actually was the one who said Gamay should be your grape here, guys. Um, I think it was two thousand and twelve or two thousand and eleven, something like that. Okay. Um, but anyways, uh, at that point, no one was thinking about Gamay other than I think and Shadow of the Charme, right? Okay. Uh, after we had the frost kill, after looking at um, you know weather data and looking at vintage charts and looking at the um, grape books, we thought that Gamay does not make sense. We took a look at the Gamays that are being produced. And we said we do like these. These are delicious. Why not consider making this? So we planted some, and we went from there. Um, This fruit of Gamay came from, again, Marcus van Beers, and he said the same thing. He had a field of Merlot that had half-died, so he decided to rip out the whole thing for the same purpose. same thing that happened to us happened to him, so he planted Gamay instead. We had access to that Merlot block beforehand, so he continued that tradition with us with the Gamay, and we have access to this Gamay block. Um, So it was just also naturally part of, again, business, is that we needed to fill a void. You know, There's a lot of taxes to pay. There's bills to pay. We have to have wine to sell. So Gamay came up on our doorstep and we said sure let's play with this and and we decided to. Uh, I'm really happy with what we've resulted or made from this. The 2017 Night moves Gamay which is what Andre you wanted to talk about uh, came out of the love and passion of sorting grapes at 24 hour cycles. That's why, hence, night moves. Oh, you're
0: probably at 24-hour cycles. You just didn't (laughs) didn't stop till it was done.
2: Yeah. Uh, So yeah, it was, like I said, it was a a crew of four people every 12 hours rotating for two weeks straight um, to get this wine sorted. It was pretty intense, Uh, chopping every single cluster in half to remove any ladybugs that were trapped or held within the berries uh, because the soy was harvested the day before. We actually took the gamay off that field, um, so it was, uh, as Ryan says, a, a plague of biblical proportions of, of ladybugs, <laughs> yeah. and so we had to do our hardest to uh, sort through it. Because Marcus is a and good are, friend. Are of ours. these the
0: same? Are these the same ladybugs of the infamous two thousand one ladybug? Yeah. Okay, so it's Malb. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, a multicoloredation uh, lady beetle. Soybean farmers who bring them in, and then they move to grapes after they're done. Exactly. With
2: the soy. Yep, that's exactly it. And so yeah, like I said, Marcus is a good friend of ours, and this is a good amount of fruit for him. So we didn't want to reject it and have him have to ditch this fruit that's a lot of income yeah right so we wanted to be respectful to a friend of ours and said we can do this yeah it's going to cost us a little bit more in in handling and sorting right now but if we're not doing anything else by adding stuff to it you know we're saving cost in this perspective we can make a juicy aromatic profiled wine with just under a year of aging and release it to market at a approachable price point we can make something that's delicious and we went for it and this is the result of it so hence night moves gamay i
1: I think it's a delicious point and I, i and i think you and i have talked about it andre that uh, the more wineries that get into making not just gamay but quality gamay, really helps our industry.
0: Hashtag #gamay the force be with you. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, I,
1: I think. That, I think <laughs> where did that come from? I like it more than
0: go gamay goes. I actually prefer, it prefer that there. over. I yeah, prefer yeah. it over that as well. We're going with uh, #gamay the force yeah. be with you now.
1: But I mean, I really like seeing um, a good gamay coming out. I like seeing. Uh, a a quality gamay coming out, and I. So this is what your second vintage, first vintage of, of a straight gamay.
2: First one, actually. This is the inaugural. Okay,
1: so uh, I, I I think we talked about in a, in a past vintage. If I see a good quality gamay coming out, I usually um, I, I, I like the of the winery. Not a, a pass, not the not the word I'm looking for, but I'm usually more enthusiastic. I really am looking forward to the 18. Uh, to see if you can do it again. Yep. I think that's yep. what I want to see. Like, I'm, I love this Gamay, and I'm like, great, another quality producer yeah. making a quality wine, yeah. but you've got to do it again in Consistency 18. is key. Correct, because there it's have key. been, you know, wineries that come out, they do a great Gamay, and then, and then the next few are just just bogus. And then, you know, uh, some people just make crappy Gamay yeah. to begin with, and then they just continue to make bad Gamay. Yeah. But I'd love to see a good quality Gamay uh, coming out and, and it's something that we really should and I think Ontario made it our fifth grape variety didn't they it's by planting sharp. But not by planting but they said um, Chardonnay and Riesling for white mm-hmm. and uh, planting, Pinot, Pinot yeah. Cap Franc and they said Gamay should be our fifth grape well now. you and I have been saying that for Correct. quite some time but I, yeah. but I, I think the wine, wine council or grape growers have now said that maybe this is a, a fifth grape that Ontario should be focusing on it should be I think it
2: should be higher than fifth but yeah yeah. After the experience of growing with it, it's, it's I think it's more resilient to our winter variation and also our seasonal variation of the growing season over Pinot Noir. Uh, I think you can consistently make a better wine out of Gamay than you can Pinot. Pinot is hit and miss. It's it's too sensitive. It's too picky. It's the heartbreak grape for a reason, right? It's it's not going to be consistently resulting in great wine all the time. Amen, some brother. Some people some speak. people can argue that, but it's the truth. I speak, think. brother Will. Speak. <laughs> Uh, and, but the Gamay, I think, is a delicious wine. And um, I'm excited about the uh, 18 as well. I'm excited about the portion of this that we held back in barrel, so we did about 20% of our reservation of this in barrel, just to do another year in barrel to see what happens. So there's still gonna be a, a Gamay reserve? Correct. Yeah, we don't know what we're gonna call it. We don't like using. We don't like really using the term reserve. Um, one because it doesn't have any legal precedent really in Ontario, yep. like in terms of levels. It's just not our thing. Um, but we'd rather give it some sort of name or come up with something for it. Yeah, I, I, think, it I think. Hey, yeah. I think
0: jumping on the names though is a a, a great place to kind of talk about yeah. where Rosewood is now because you brought all these wines and they've all got kind of clever names. We've got uh, yeah, follow, do, follow yeah. the white rabbit. Um, which is uh, like you, you I think you, you called it a restaurant Blanichaux Vineyard. Yeah. But, it's, uh, but it's a it's a it's a Chardonnay a Pinot Gris, right? Chardonnay yeah. Pinot Gris. Chardonnay Pinot Gris. Just yeah. really delicious and, and crushable. We've got your PTG, which yeah. is... Notorious uh, PTG, yeah. Notorious PTG, which is a uh, Pinot Noir Gamay. A blend. crown on the
1: D, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, we have
0: your, your Riesling Arrested Ferment, yeah. Riesling mm-hmm. AF. Yeah,
1: for
0: uh, those millennials out there. Oh, I really love the name of that <laughs> wine. But I think it's, it's just sort of like um, you've really kind of landed on a place where... The labels all are consistent, you've got the honeycomb going on, like the, the, the front of every label of rosewood wine now looks like it's got a honeycomb on it with the exception of Lockstock. Yeah. You've got the B front and center, but I mean at the same time you're still, you talk about how the original label you were trying to look at what's happening in France, it still has all the information presented and it's a really traditional way of presenting the, uh, the information. And uh, I guess after Ross left, you hired uh, Ryan Corrigan, right?
2: Correct, yeah. Who came to you via
0: Pearl Morissette.
2: Via Pearl Morissette. Uh, and then before that, he did a vintage at Hidden Bench. He did a vintage then at Soyuz La Rose in BC. Uh, he did a vintage, um, more than a vintage, at Opus One. He's worked at Kim Crawford, where he swore he'd never make Sauvignon Blanc in that style as Kim Crawford ever again. That's why our Saint-Zere, our Sanger Sauvignon Blanc here is so vastly different um, from the true DNA of that wine. Um, he's worked at a couple of places in, in Switzerland when he was finishing his Covey program as well, and in, in Italy and France. So he's been around the block a couple times, uh, and he's got a world of knowledge and information around him. It's really something.
0: Well, since we're now talking about about the new guy and the the present history of, of Rosewood, let's uh, put in our glass one of the carryovers. Yeah, the, another, another transition
1: wine. But yeah. I mean, you know, this is uh, I think I think when when a when a winery starts. It, uh, it It's trying to make uh, very approachable wine, just trying to sell wines uh, fairly quickly because everybody knows yeah. that if you're planning a vineyard, uh, it, it takes you about three or four years to finally look at yeah. uh, getting some kind of money in the till because everything for the first three years is, is putting out on, on out. buildings, on barrels, on, you know, uh, getting everything set up, and uh, but now that you are X number of years old, you're working 10 years yep. or so. Um, it's time to start looking at making something in the higher end uh, of wines, and hopefully putting some money into the into the till that actually stays there and doesn't continue to go out. And what we're looking at right now is uh what is it the third
2: or fourth iteration of lock this stock and would barrel. be the fourth because okay. 2011 was the first so then the 12 the 13 uh the 14 now the 2015. so this is your bordeaux blend yes. i guess for lack of a better term yep.
1: but it's the high-end stuff this is best barrels best everything correct so yep. explain well, what lock stock and barrel is how the name came about yep. And, and then what I got, obviously what I've got in my glass.
2: Yeah, so um, I'll start with the name. Lock, stock and barrel uh, comes from the old British term that describes the various parts of the shopkeeper's musket. So the lock being the flintlock that creates the explosion, the stock which is the portion held by the hand or up against the body that c- produces steadiness and then the barrel that actually fires the projectile to its target. Uh, separately they all achieve nothing, effectively, but together they make something powerful. That's why when we discovered this name, we thought this is a really great name for a Bordeaux blend because that's the art of assemblage. That's the art of blending a Bordeaux varietal, uh, Bordeaux varietals back together to make something better than the sum of its parts. But what okay. we should say
1: is you're, you're not promoting gun nope. culture here in any way, shape, Definitely or form. Not, it was no. just an idea of... And I think yeah. I would think the most people who have used the term lock, stock, and barrel had no idea that it really well, had anything to do with, with gun culture. I don't think so either. That it just was... Everybody knew that it was just everything. Everything. So you're going to buy something, you're buying lock, stock, and barrel. You're buying everything. Buy everything. Yeah. I, I so.
0: just want to read like the, the, the text from the back label, which I, I do find interesting and kind of cool and pretty well written, too. Lock, stock, and barrel is an old British term describing the different components of a shopkeeper's musket. Separately, each achieve little, but when combined, they become powerful. Um, I mean, that sort of sort of sums up a great image. And when you talk about the art of assemblage, like that's definitely what's being being accomplished here. Yeah, and I'm, I'm a sucker for a good label. And I, I think you said Max Kaiser
2: designed yeah. this label. Yeah, this is a Max Kaiser label. We um, this is the first label that we had actually uh, really spent time building a label with with a proper designer focused to the wine, yep. to the name. Uh, all the other labels before were just a, I don't want to say a stock label, but just the Rosewood label with a change to the name to go onto the bottle of wine for whatever wine was in it. This was the first wine that we had branded that was specific to that wine with a specific label and a specific name. So you could say arguably a complete package, if you will.
0: Well, the thing that, that, the thing that I really love about this front label is like it's still very distinct and Uh, I mean, it it creates a a separate brand, but it doesn't hide what it is. It has the percentages of what's in the assemblage right on the front
1: of the bottle, which... As well as the back. And now explain to us what's the impetus for making this particular wine based on all the other... You know, you make make Pinot, you make Gamay, you make Viognier, Chardonnay... Uh, But suddenly now, uh, Merlot is gone, obviously. You don't make a straight Petit Verdot. You don't make a straight Malbec. But suddenly, now we have all five of the Bordeaux grape varieties. What's the impetus for making this four years ago and keeping it up?
2: So the original idea behind it was that it was actually given to me as a project to uh, myself and our assistant winemaker, who was Luke Rowinski at the time. Um, So Eugene came up to me and Luke and said, hey, I want you guys to make a wine. Make something that's different. Make something that we don't do here at Rosewood yet. So, Luke and I looked at each other and said, Cool, we can make another Chardonnay, but there's going to be people who hate it. We can make another Riesling, right? But that's just one tank. So, we said, Why not make a Bordeaux? We can then ferment four or five separate things, learn from each of those fermentation types, and then make a crafted wine that we then spend time doing. So, learning, right? Learning is a big part of our program at Rosewood on all fronts. So, from uh, highly educated staff at the, at the front of our building, so front house to the back. We do a lot of staff tastings. We will push everyone to do education. I just completed my WSET diploma because of the same pr- premise. Um, so this was really done as a project of learning. And at that point, it wasn't lock, stock and barrel. We didn't know what we were doing. We were just saying, let's just work on a Bordeaux. And that was the idea behind it. So we used the grapes that we could. So we uh, took Merlot from our Merlot field at the time. We took Cabernet Franc from our field. And that's where then we approached Marcus Van Beers. who got some Capsule from him. We approached some other growers. and got some Malbec and Petit So we truly crafted this from Niagara. And that's why on the back of the label we give thanks to the growers who make this possible. It really is in part because they allowed us to do this. And without their help, this would not come to be. And and that's really what the beginning was, was to learn. and And from that learning and that two year journey of before putting it into bottle, then we came up with the name Lock, Stock and Barrel, because it finally hit us that this is not just a cheesy name, it wasn't a name that was uh, comical or uh, superficial, it had depth, it had meaning to it, it was relatable, relatable to the wine itself. It had a lot of different things going for it that made sense. And then it came the label portion of it. So that's when then, again, looking at various labels in Niagara and talking to different designers, we settled on Max Kaiser because we thought that it was just up his genres, up his style to do something like this. And I'm really happy with the result of all of it. Again, this package that's come together over the years um, is something I'm very proud of. And I'm, I'm I'm just really, really proud of it. So you're not just all estate fruit either. No, not on, on not on all of your wines. Obviously, we
1: talked about the the viognier, which is yep. not from yours. Yep. But uh, so, what is uh, what are you making that's estate? Mm-hmm. And what are you bringing in? And why? What's the decision <laughs> yeah. for bringing in? Great want.
2: questions. So, um, I'll first start with the stuff that is estate fruit. So, um, for example, what we have right now is our Renaissance Vineyard Riesling. So, the barrel fermented uh, Riesling is 100% estate, the Chardonnay is 100% estate, um, the Cabernet Franc is 100% estate. Um, and then the other blends are all, and then the Pinot is one hundred percent estate, but from our Twenty First Street Vineyard. Pinot's delicious, by the way. <laughs> the Blackjack Pinot, yeah. Yeah. Um, the Riesling AF is also a state fruit, so it's a combination of the residual balance from the Renaissance Vineyard as well as everything from Blackjack Vineyard. So those are two different clones that come together to make Riesling AF of clone forty nine from from Blackjack Vineyard, and then W twenty one B from the Renaissance Vineyard. Uh, all the other offerings that I have here are all from brought in fruit from various growers. Um, And lock stock is a combination, some from our state, some from these growers. Um, To answer your question about why are we dealing with growers is, is again, it's business, is that when our vineyards died in 2014, we lost a third of our vines. Um, You know, at this point, we still have bills to pay, right? Taxes, insurance, people want to be paid, right? The government doesn't stop, right? No, right? And so uh, what do you do when you lose a third of your vines? And when you replant, it takes another four years before you get fruit. Do you just hunker down and, and hope for the best and not sell wine? No, you have to make something, right? You know, we're, we're, we're a real functioning business. So we had to decide at that point, let's bring in some fruit. So we decided to bring in fruit and we started to then talk to the so growers that we knew. Will, when,
0: when, when your parents started the winery, mm-hmm. what were they thinking? How many cases? I think you threw a number out earlier yeah. on that you said like a 1,000 cases. Yeah, about 1,
2: 000, probably 1,000, 1,500 cases, no more than that. It was so. meant to be just a hobby farm for them, something to retire into before they realized uh, the magnitude of what it means to make wine in Ontario. So and how many cases are you making now? Uh, now we're just hovering around that six and a half to eight thousand mark, depending on okay. the vintage. So and still also, a small winery. Yeah, yeah. We're not we're not bigger by bigger medium by any size. Um, we're not. I wouldn't say boutique by that definition. But again, who defines these terms now? Um, you know, it's a sliding scale because of production. Like you look at, I don't know, Henry Pelham probably doing like probably two hundred thousand plus cases now. Like you know, mm-hmm. it's different scales now, right? Than what it was. Um, our goals are never to be a massive winery like that, right? You know, maybe we'll tap out around that eight to 10,000 case mark, but that's also well, you, you a combination did just com- of... You did just others.
0: complete, or you are almost completed an expansion mm-hmm. to the facility, Yeah. so obviously with expansion it doesn't in- include increased capacity, right?
2: Yeah, there's a, there's an increasing capacity for us to hold more barrels or wine, you could say, and there's no more tank capacity right now, so we haven't had any tanks to the facility. Um, the expansion was done really with the intention of making work easier. Um, so I'm not sure when the last time you would have been in our barrel room, but our barrel room, the one that's really elaborately decorated with the uh, beautiful timbers and the stone and the, um, the hand-painted uh um stuff. I just stuff. remember
0: the door to that barrel yeah.
2: room. Yeah, the stained glass windows and stuff. The door's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that room was full, like when I say full, like I mean to the brim, like oh, it's literally it was, it was one person, you could only have one person walk through in one single file the entire way through the building or that room, you couldn't even put a pallet through it anymore. Um, and so to ask someone to be like, hey, I got to go get that stack of pinot in the corner, it would take all weekend to remove all the barrels, get what you need out and put everything back. And then you do the work and then you have to do it again to put it all back together. Right? So it was, it was very demoralizing for the team. And, uh, and you can't use that space for an events, for hosting. You can't do anything with it. Right? So we decided, hey, let's build more to this building. Let's add something so that we can have room to host people. We can have room to make better wine, to actually be more comfortable in our wine making process. Because now also with Ryan making the wines, he makes wine sl- in a slower approach. Mm-hmm. So we're holding stuff in barrel longer, holding stuff in, 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 in glass longer and bottle longer before we actually release it. We need room to store it all. So the idea and intention behind this expansion wasn't really to make more wines, just to make it more efficiently and also in a better controlled state. So now we have uh, three distinctive uh, zones of temperature control that we can make our wine in. versus before we had only one area to ferment in and one area to store in. Now we have two different areas to ferment in and one for deep storage of the wines.
1: So obviously there's some, there's some, uh, some growth that's going on after 10 years. I, I guess we should wrap this up uh, a little bit. And uh, so w- we've talked about the past 10 years. We've mm-hmm. talked about the present. What's the future for, for Rosewood that you see going forward? Mm. What are we looking forward to seeing from you guys? And uh, obviously, you're, you're here to stay. Yep. After 10 years, it's not like you're packing up a shop I, and I going, hope not. you're not I fly hope not, by night. No. So what what are um, we looking to see, hopefully, in the next ten years, and, and what do you see as being your core varietals and, and things yeah. like that going forward?
2: You know, uh, first all, I want to say uh, that I'm, I'm happy to have met people such as you guys. Honestly, in the last ten years, I get to, I got to meet you guys and all other awesome people in the wine oh, industry. No, yeah, but it's the truth, you know. Seriously, it's you like know the, you're not getting
0: paid here, right? Yeah, we're gonna have to kiss okay. him. Maybe the end maybe in something. wines, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But
2: it's the truth, you know. I think wine is about people, and it's about people coming together at a table and enjoying. And like we talked about before, is that wine has to be delicious, and that can't happen if the wine isn't delicious, meaning people coming together and talking, having conversations. So I'm really thankful about the people that I met through this industry. It's incredible. And some of the people I met are just absolutely amazing. Um, so I'm really thankful about that. In terms of what we're doing going forward, I think you're going to see a lot bigger push for our Mead program. I'm going to start with that because the Meads that we're starting to craft now are truly mind-blowing to me, even though I've, I have a really deep understanding and knowing and knowledge of Mead. We're making a Calvados style mead, we're doing mead and rum barrels, we're doing meads that were based with tea instead of water, we're doing a whole bunch of different stuff that we never even thought of. We're freezing meads. Is this uh, is
0: a lot of this coming from, um, and I, I, I don't want to tell this this story on the podcast, but the happy accident that was Old Smoky. Very much so. And if anyone wants to hear the story of Old Smoky, go to Rosewood, talk yeah. to Will, yeah. it is a hilarious and delicious story. Yeah,
2: it, it is. It all actually stems from that crazy happy accident. Um It really showed us what we don't know and how little we truly know and that we need to keep asking questions and we need to keep pushing forward because who knows what is out there that we have no idea about because meat has been forgotten about. You know, humans make meat, yeah, but we don't focus on it. Wine has been a focus. Wine's been the limelight and stolen it from everybody. And and I think that the beer scene to bring that that equation side of things into it is really shown people that you can go out of your comfort zone you don't have to drink your pills and your lager the way that our our grandfathers did and that our fathers did you can drink stuff that's hazy and that's fermented with fruit and done with different types of barrels and all these different adjuncts that you know you never expected to to have in a beer so it's pushing people out of their comfort zones and that means you can do that with meat and with wine, too, right? So that's where, like, you pet Natson comes up. Man. It still
0: has to be delicious. It has
2: to be delicious. That's the that's the number one thing. You know, if it's not delicious, we're not going to put it out. That's that's our core belief. You know, again, you could not like the Chardonnay, but the Chardonnay... I'd be wrong. But the Chardonnay co-fermented I'm not wrong. honey... You are
0: wrong. Right. You are wrong. Not wrong. I'll show I'm you dude. a
2: Chardonnay fermented with honey in cognac barrels, and you'll maybe change I may, your mind. I may right? change my maybe mind. Change I didn't, mind. Say, I, I, I didn't <laughs> say
1: I dislike all Chardonnay. Yeah. There's just, you know, certain Chardonnays, and as I said, I'm really looking forward to the next yeah. iteration uh, of, of the Chardonnay to, because it's just I, th- I think it really is hard f- for you know a winemaker to come in and change path of the other winemaker. I, find that the, I, f- I think that's the hardest thing to do. It's like somebody writing an essay and then halfway through somebody else has to take over that essay and finish it. It's true. Uh, and, and, and I find that that difficult. <laughs> Andrea, I, I love that we write for Toronto life. And uh, and we and we write together and but we also edit each other's stuff. We and do, but, but there's a back and forth though. So it's not yeah, like I pick up and finish. Cor- it's, correct. So it's not like you finish and but so okay, that's a collaborative effort. Whereas, yeah. you know, it's not like Ross was around to go. You know, this is what I was thinking. This yeah. is what I was going to do. It was like he had to, f- to just take it over he and go it. boom. Yeah. You know, he started it yeah. and then he went goodbye. Yeah, and then. He has to do it all over again.
0: Well, yeah. you, you know, uh, I guess just as we're close to to wrapping up here too, what I find particularly interesting is how different Ryan's style is from Ross's. Where I think Ross and Natalie, there were a lot more more similarities. Definitely. But Ross made delicious wines, and I'm sure still makes delicious wines. And he did at all the wineries he worked for in in Niagara. That's why Black Hills has to send us some. But yeah. yes, definitely. <laughs> but what's really fascinating is. Um, the wines that are being made by Ryan are also very delicious and a lot more interesting. I mean, you poured for us earlier a uh, barrel fermented and uh, wild, it was wild fermented and yeah, full mallow as well, yeah. um, unfiltered. That was just completely, yeah. completely delicious and, and interesting. Yeah. Um and, and, and something that... See, he's lost for words. He has I no idea what to do that's, with that's anything. A good thing, I Well, it's sort of trying to find a way to talk about this Riesling without comparing it to another Riesling made in what I would say comp- con- comparable veins without completely crapping on it. This Riesling is delicious and easy to drink I and easy can't imagine, to explain. He's yeah. never said the we word
1: delicious so many times. <laughs> uh, except for it when I cooked it. It tastes I'm like right. apple pie. Whatever. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so let's finish this off. Yeah. So I yeah. see
2: mead being in your future. Mead in the future, yeah. Uh, and
1: where, where's the, where does the wine you program know, you're go? You're going to
2: see a lot more neutral oak. You're okay. going to see a lot less hands, um, firm hands on the wines. You know, when we say honest, honest wines and low intervention, we really mean that. As you saw in a lot of the lineup here, there's only one or two that have been filtered. Um, one, I think that was inoculated, and all of them are unfined. All of them are uh, zero manipulations at harvest, so meaning an adjustment of sugar or acid. Uh, two of them were done without any sulfur additions throughout the entire life of the wine before bottling. So you're going to see more of this, and we're really happy doing this. So you know, it takes na- a lot of natural wine, wine.
1: but not in the bad sense of natural wine. Yes.
2: Um, Yes. Yes, and no. Uh, As you noticed, I've never said the term "natural wine" because I don't like that term. I don't Um, either. So that's why I was saying "natural." I also didn't want to didn't want to say that either because it's the same thing. Um, I'll be perfectly
0: honest. When you said that this was a barrel fermented Riesling, my shoulders tensed up before I put the glass to my mouth. But I mean, if we can get rid of some of those preconceived notions, and Mm -hmm. I I also like the fact that you earlier in the podcast talked about how you issue the term "reserve." And what you said before the the microphone went on was that you're just focused on doing really honest winemaking, and it says yeah.
2: on the back of the bottle what's in it's the bottle natural, and how it was
0: made,
1: but honest winemaking.
2: Honest, yeah. That's, I think that's I really think what our moniker is: is to be honest. We want you to know. We want you to know. We want you to know what you're drinking. Uh, one of the mentalities that Ryan adopts um, or has adopted, and he loves to do or to keep in his mind, is don't do anything to a wine that we're not willing to admit to our consumers. Right? We want you to know full heartedly everything that goes on with this wine. So that's why. I'd rather instead of repeat everything in terms of saying, Oh, it's unfiltered, unfine, blah, 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 blah. It's just like this is our program. This is how we treat all of our wines. That's what it is. And if we do something to a wine, we'll tell you to highlight that. And we don't see it as a negative or positive, but we did it for a reason. I right. think that's, that's a hell of a way to wrap that's a good way to end.
0: <laughs> I think the uh, something to look forward to with, yeah. with Rosewood and uh, I think
1: something that So the last words are well. look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks for coming in. Thank um, you guys, thank you. He is Andre Pru from UnderWineReview.ca. I'm Michael Pincus from... MichaelPinkusWineReview.com. Thank God I love it when you say it because it hey, sounds Will, better. Will, where are you from? Sign well, off. Will Roman from Rosewood. I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPinkusWineReview.com and as always, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.